My kids love their snacks just like everyone else, but I'm really picky about what they eat. And if it's going to be something in a package, I want it to be healthy, high quality, and something that's not going to break the bank. I recently discovered Thrive Market and they check all the boxes. My kids are loving the seaweed snacks, cinnamon applesauce, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. What I love most about Thrive Market is that everything is organic and non-GMO, and it's more affordable than what you'll find in the stores. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a low-income family. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insights to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. Breastfeeding rates in the U.S. have increased in recent years, but recent studies show that disparities exist among certain racial and ethnic groups. And across the board, there are significant barriers which prevent women from breastfeeding for six months or longer. You know, what's so interesting is that we're not even looking at breastfeeding still as the root of so much chronic disease because it's so politicized. That's Jennifer Grayson, an award-winning journalist and author of Unlatched, The Evolution of Breastfeeding and the Making of a Controversy. We'll talk about the latest breastfeeding rates in the U.S., what it has to do with childhood obesity and chronic diseases, the barriers that women face, breastfeeding in public, and the sexualization of breastfeeding, extended breastfeeding, and so much more. There's a ton of information and real-life experience in this episode, and I think you're really going to love this conversation with Jennifer Grayson. Jennifer, welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. Thank you, Julie. I'm happy to be here. Great. So let's dive right in. What does the latest research on breastfeeding rates in the U.S. show? So because it's been a few years since I wrote Unlatched, I, I was looking over the recent statistics. And so there's a lot of encouraging news. I mean, the when I first started writing Unlatched and researching, less than 80% of new moms had ever started breastfeeding. And now that number is up, I believe, almost at 85%. Uh, there's a much bigger proportion of moms still breastfeeding at six months. The exclusive breastfeeding numbers have gone up. So there's been a lot of great news. Um, unfortunately, if you look, if you really dive into the t- statistics, what we're seeing is that um, while a lot of moms are start- starting out breastfeeding and the culture has changed, uh, we're n- still not providing the support as a society to make sure that moms can successfully breastfeed. And you see that in the statistics uh, that, you know, exclusive breastfeeding rates, meaning that you're able to breastfeed all the way through six months without supplementing with formula, without supplementing with food, um, drop off pretty dramatically. And yeah, we can talk at length about the policy reasons for that, but we, we still have a long way to go. So I'm hopeful, but also, uh, yeah, really, <laughs> really excited to talk to you today about what I think we need to do as a society. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, breastfeeding is such a controversial topic. And so I I don't ever want to come off as judging moms who aren't able to breastfeed. But, you know, our goal is to to help moms through this journey. And so the you know, the latest research also talked about healthy people targets. And 
What exactly is that? And, and what does it tell us about, you know, where we've been from 2020 and, and where we're headed to 2030? Because I guess that's the next healthy, tar- healthy people target goal. Right. So I'm just going to preface this by saying that, you know, I am not a policy expert. I wrote the book a number of years ago. I can certainly speak at length about um, the historical, the cultural, the overall political reasons for why breastfeeding was denormalized in the modern world. But in terms of like digging into the nitty gritty statistics, I've been following the research and I probably have been reading exactly what you've been reading. So um, just for everyone who's listening, the healthy people targets are essentially these science-based 10-year objectives that the government, I think it's through the Department of Health and Human Services, sets for all sorts of different health metrics. So it's not just breastfeeding. Um, It's nutrition. Of course, obesity is top of mind. Um, And well, now we're in the midst of COVID. So a lot of these objectives are not really on the top of everyone's mind right now because they're more about long-term health goals. Um, But, you know, uh, 10 years ago and 10 years before, there were these metrics set for breastfeeding. And the goal was to increase the number of moms overall who were breastfeeding, increase the number of moms who were exclusively breastfeeding to six months, and then fully breastfeeding through a year or beyond. And so if you look at the 2020 um, objectives, and I'm just looking at the stats right in front of me, uh, you know, the, the target. So in 2006, the baseline was 74% of moms had ever started breastfeeding. And the target was 81.9% by 2020. Um, And we've met that. And so then there will be the 2030 targets, which are set. And then we're hopefully going to move toward that. Yeah. Where did they come up with that number? (laughs) 81.9%. You know, (laughs) a lot of political negotiating, I think. I mean, What's so interesting is that as I was researching all of these um, and and talking to so many people who had been in this movement for so long, um, and for instance, the people who were involved in the American Academy of Pediatrics breastfeeding section, who set the goal for all American moms, who said that we should have moms exclusively breastfeed to six months, and then the goal is one year or more, that was completely an arbitrary policy decision. That's not, that was based on some science, but mostly it was based on the fact that we, they knew that women in this country, if you told them that they had to breastfeed more than a year, it would sound shocking given where we were at the time. So if like, for instance, the world health organization says, continue breastfeeding for two years or more. And in in the U S we said, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Like, yeah, right. No one's going to do that. So, um, it was set at one year. And so a lot of these, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask someone who was who was directly involved, but I suspect that um, there was a lot of negotiating with a lot of different groups. Yeah, yeah, that's that interesting. Target. Yeah. And so, you know, especially during COVID, I mean, we've, we've seen health inequities for years, but COVID's definitely shined a light on that. And so we're also seeing racial ethnic disparities for breastfeeding moms. Do we, do we know why that is? Or can you talk about why you think that is? Oh, absolutely. Well, we do know why that is. And the biggest discrepancy, the biggest disparity, if you look at, is Black Americans in this country. And there, are, I just want to say, first of all, if you want to dig into this topic, and we should, as we can see what COVID has done um, to highlight just the incredible racial disparity um, and institutional racism, check out the work of Kimberly Seals Allers 
So she has really taken the issue of maternal health and breastfeeding and looked at it from a Black perspective. And so she can speak far more in depth than I can. But the short story is, I mean, there is deep-seated, you know, cultural trauma around Black women and breastfeeding. Um, If you look at this country, if you look during slavery, Black women had their children taken away from them so that they could nurse white women. white women's children. And so there's this, there are two parts of it. I mean, there's the institutional racism that is very present in hospitals today in that when a black woman comes in um, with a new mom, with a new baby, they healthcare professionals already assume that she isn't going to breastfeed because those breastfeeding rates are so much lower in that community. And so there's a bias there that they aren't even offered the support that they need. They aren't offered lactation consultants. Um, and their doctors don't take them as seriously when they have breastfeeding concerns. And so there's that level. And then there's also the deep cultural trauma, um, which is, yeah, it's something we really need to work on. And, and of course, it's not just the Black community. You, you look at, um, it's very, it's actually, it's socioeconomics plays a huge part of it too. Mm-hmm. So basically what it boils down to in this country, the way we have it set up is that if you have access to private health care, if you are of means, if you can hire a lactation consultant, um, if you can give birth in a hospital that's baby friendly, you have a much better chance of breastfeeding. And if you don't and you don't have access to those resources and you don't have parental leave, which most people in this country don't anyway, then you're basically a have not when it comes to breastfeeding support. So there are huge, huge disparities. And that was one of the things that I really explored in depth. It unlatched. And also, I should say, Julie, experience personally, because when I had my first daughter, Izzy, we, my husband had been unemployed for two years. Um, before I was a writer, we were struggling musicians. I mean, we had been living hand to mouth for years and years. I couldn't get insurance uh, because of a pre-existing health condition. And so I really experienced what it was like to try to breastfeed in that environment with no support. Um, and that really opened my eyes to to just what other women were experiencing in this country. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like if we could just solve these problems, we could solve chronic disease in America. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could. And you know what's so interesting is that we're not even looking at breastfeeding still as the root of so much chronic disease. Right. Because it's so politicized. And, um, you know, and here we have literally the foundation of a child's life, what they're supposed to be fed for the first six months exclusively for the first year exclusively. And yet somehow the medical establishment still isn't making the connection that this is the most important thing we can talk about when we're talking about setting up a person for uh, a long, healthy, hopefully disease-free life. Right. And so you mentioned baby-friendly hospitals. So what are baby-friendly hospitals and what does the research say about the benefits of them? And are, are more hospitals going in, going that route? Yes. So the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative was started um, in the 1990s. It was a World Health Organization and um, UNICEF initiative. And basically, it boils down to this. I mean, the, there's a lot of debate around the title Baby Friendly. It doesn't, I don't think it actu- accurately conveys what it is. Um, But it basically took the influence of the formula companies out of hospitals 
because a lot of people don't realize the historical context. I mean, formula companies in the 1950s and 60s were so interwoven with hospitals and with doctors that they had a huge role in designing baby nurseries. And so most people don't know that hospitals, even still, uh, many of them are supplied unlimited amounts of formula free from the formula companies to dispense, you know, at their own will. Um, And so we come from this background where formulas were, the formula companies were so entrenched in hospitals. And so the baby friendly initiative was a way to take that influence out and also provide a supportive environment for moms to breastfeed. Um, And that means, you know, not having babies separated from moms right at birth, having babies be able to room in, having lactation consultants, having breastfeeding be the first option that is supported rather than formula being the first thing that comes in. Um, And so what's really exciting when I was looking at the statistics, I mean, when I first started, uh, it was, I think it was like less than 3% of U.S. hospitals, of babies born in the U.S. were born in baby-friendly hospitals. And now it's over 28%. Okay, but still low. In like six years. Still low. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I know. Thanks for for reminding me when I see these. I'm like, wow, that's so great. But you're right. I mean, the fact that, so that means that, you know, in 72% of U.S. hospitals or more, you have the influence of the formula companies. And yeah, so there have been huge gains, but there's still a, a long way to go. Yeah. So it makes sense why so many women are not breastfeeding past that six month mark or or even less than that. Um, That's really concerning. So let's talk about your book because we are going to link to it in the show notes. It's an amazing book and a must read for any mom. It takes such a deep, deep dive into the history of breastfeeding and all the factors that have shaped breastfeeding and, and our perspectives on breastfeeding as well. So can you talk about everything that you learned <laughs> as much <laughs> as you can and, and what it means for moms today? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I can talk about everything I learned, <laughs> Julie, but thank you so much for your kind words about the book. Uh, well, let me just talk about the the big takeaway of the book and maybe what led me to write the book, if that's helpful. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Okay, thanks. So just to put it in context, I, I like to say that I was the least likely person to write this book, perhaps, because I am not from a breastfeeding family, a breastfeeding advocate family. I was for, exclusively formula fed. Uh, and the astonishing thing is that I had never even thought about that. Never even thought about the fact that I was formula fed until I was pregnant with my children. Um, And even then didn't understand it in the context that really led me to write the book. And what I mean by that is, so I was, you know, I was writing about environmental issues. I had uh, created this green advice column at the Huffington Post and I was pregnant with my first daughter and I was researching all sorts of, you know, I've been researching GMOs and, and very involved. I wrote a column every week where I dealt with the industrialization of our food system and pesticides and agriculture and never want. And when I was thinking about like my own pregnancy and, um, having a more, I guess at the time it was like a green pregnancy. I never even occurred to me to think about breastfeeding or formula feeding to the point that I was like doing stories about non-toxic nurseries and, um, you know, removing formaldehyde from baby furniture and never covered 
<laughs> breastfeeding or formula feeding. So, okay. So, and the, the backstory is that I actually came from what I thought was a very, uh, holistically minded upbringing. I mean, my mom made everything from scratch and we shopped at the health food store long before whole foods ever existed. And I was always like outside playing. And, um, so it didn't, I had never really thought about like this disconnect. And then when I was pregnant with Izzy and I knew I wanted to breastfeed at the time, everyone said, you know, breast is best. And that was, it's, that's still a huge part of our, the conversation is that awful phrase, which we can talk more about, uh, in a little bit, excuse me. And so I, I, at the time, I think I mentioned, you know, my husband was unemployed and we couldn't get insurance. And I was at Kaiser Permanente, which is this nonprofit hospital. Um, I don't know, is it on the East Coast at all? Or is it mostly California? Yeah, I think it's on the West Coast. Yeah. Yeah, it's mostly West Coast. And they were the only ones who would insure me. But interestingly, because they were nonprofit, they had just taken a hard look at, at how they were going to um, you know, secure their finances over the long term and realized that if they had free lactation consultants and really encouraged breastfeeding, then it would help drive down their costs in the long run because there would be less cases of all the the typical childhood illnesses that you have, like respiratory illnesses and gastrointestinal illnesses. But long-term, there would be lower rates of obesity and diabetes and and um, other chronic diseases. So anyway, I know this is a, I'm turning this into a very long story, but basically I was in this environment where I was, had this sudden supportive breastfeeding environment. Um, I knew I had planned on breastfeeding and, but one day, we received a formula package in the mail. So have you, did you ever get one of those when you were pregnant? Oh yeah. The all formula the time. Companies? You <laughs> did. Coupons okay. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. The coupons. Okay. And I actually got an actual package and I opened like a, like a little present. I was like, Oh, what's this? And <laughs> open it up. And there was <clears throat> a container of formula. And I knew I had planned on breastfeeding. I had been researching through my column <laughs> All of the, all about our industrialized food system. And yet still, I took that can of formula and I was like, hmm, maybe I'll just put this with the baby stuff just in case, uh-huh. just in case I need it. Right. And my husband said, wait, whoa, 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 what, what are you doing? What is that? What's, what is even in that stuff? So we turned over the package and I, for the first time in my life, I saw the ingredients and I connected it with like, oh, this is what these were the building blocks of my life. Mm-hmm. Corn syrup, nonfat milk proteins, soy oil, coconut oil. And I realized there was this huge disconnect. And here I had had chronic health issues for most of my 20s um, and all sorts of like an autoimmune ailment. And no doctor had ever asked me what I was fed as a baby. Right. And I had seen everyone from the top neurologists. Um, and, you know, conventional doctors to like holistic naturopaths and no one had ever asked it. And I started thinking, wow, why is this missing from the conversation, Mm -hmm. the building blocks of, of a baby's life? And not only that, but, you know, when I started looking at the bigger context, because I've always been so interested in history and, um, and anthropology, well, how did women feed their babies throughout most of human history? And and if we turned away from something only in the past hundred years, because formulas weren't even 
invented. There was no alternative to breastfeeding until the mid 1800s, late 1800s. Then what are the consequences for humanity? And all of a sudden it became this really big picture. Um, it, it was almost like a lightning bolt that I just, I had never thought about it before. And then mm-hmm. as I started researching, then I realized, well, you know, we had become so ensconced in this is breastfeeding debate um, that we completely lost sight of the big picture. And so, what so would now you, I've completely yeah. wandered from where your original question is, Julie, and I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah. What, what would but, you yeah. say is, were the biggest things that, that you discovered w- with writing the book about breastfeeding oh, in America? Yeah. Okay. Well, so the really things that, that astonished me, the first big thing is that, you know, human milk is, this is not nutrition. This is partly nutrition. Yes. But this is a, this is a human tissue. Scientists view this as a human tissue similar to blood. And so, and the extent of its complexity, we haven't even uncovered yet. So we've mapped the human microbiome, we've mapped the human genome, and we still have no idea what's in breast milk at all. And when the, what we do know is so astonishing. I mean, when you look at like the, there have been 1600 proteins alone uh, uncovered in breast milk so far. I mean, there's uh, hormones and all sorts of bioactive molecules. And there are oligosaccharides. And I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And so that was one of the huge parts of the book was the science of what we know, but also what we don't know, because it's such a new field. So that was, that was pretty mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what also I uncovered in the book, um, you know, the extent that this really isn't we think that this is a mother's choice. You know, we think that this is uh, moms are choosing whether to breastfeed or formula feed. And there's this big debate. But what we really don't realize is that in this country, there is a huge amount of influence from the formula companies in much the way that are the same way it is in an entire food system that you have these giant corporations um, lobbying the federal government and the, and what we have in essence Via, you mentioned before the the federal WIC program is a state sponsored formula giveaway program, and that really was the center of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot about the history of breastfeeding, and I mean, really, every chapter was a different facet of why is it so hard to breastfeed in the modern world? How did we come away from breastfeeding? When did this transition take place? But really, at the center of it is this. Um, this really rather shocking situation we have in the U S that no other country in the world has where we have, we're the only country in the world without paid leave, not just industrialized every single other country in the world, save for two other countries has paid leave. Um, and what we have instead of providing parental leave is a state sponsored formula program. And it's essentially enabled an entire underclass of people in this country to be given a cheap industrialized way to feed their children and not be with their babies. So yeah, I mean, I could go on and on, but like, those are the, those are the pretty huge takeaways. And um, yeah, I mean, I talk a lot about the, the sexualization of breastfeeding, how that happened, Mm -hmm. because that's a huge obstacle that I faced when I was um, nursing both my daughters. And that sent me to write the book, Mm -hmm. which was, why is it so hard to breastfeed in public? And wait a second, how come in so many other cultures in the world, like we don't, 
breasts aren't even seen as anything sexualized. And how did that happen in the U.S.? Right. So that was another fascinating part of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the WIC program. That was one of the parts of the book that really stood out for me. Can you talk about what that is and why women are receiving free formula? And and has anything changed during COVID? Yeah. Well, so it's important to note, first off, that it's a huge paradox because WIC, so it's the Women, Infant, Women, Infants, and Children program. It's run out of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, and it is, there are a lot of wonderful things about the program. And so it's a, it's a food assistance program. And it's a way to provide really important staple food to, you know, women, infants, children under the age of five. Breastfeeding support has become a huge part of it. So as the federal government realized that, oh, wait, we have skyrocketing rates of obesity and diabetes um, and cancer, and we need to increase breastfeeding rates, they decided to offer breastfeeding support through the federal WIC program. So it supports in many ways a huge number of women. 53% of American infants are um, supplied formula and food through the federal WIC program. So in essence, the U.S. government is the formula company's biggest customer. Right. Um, But the paradox is that the very centerpiece of the program is free formula. And so what I actually uncover in the book, and I mean, this, it was an investigation that took the entire, I mean, at least a year of, of research to actually get to the bottom of. Um, But Essentially, it goes all the way back to to milk subsidies, to dairy subsidies that were started during the Hoover and then um, Roosevelt administrations. And in essence, we this was started like a lot of federal assistance programs, which was a well in a well-meaning, well-intentioned way to offload some surplus to the neediest people. And so when this program was started in the 1970s, um, it was with 88,000 women and their children. And at that time, kids were starving. I mean, babies were truly, truly malnourished. And the irony was it was because women had stopped breastfeeding for the first time in history in the decades prior. And people didn't have access to formula back then um, if, you were, if you were disadvantaged. And so people were watering down uh, like condensed milk mm-hmm. and whatever they had on hand. And so babies were starving. And so the program was created as a way to be like, okay, we have this excess, let's give it to iron fortified formula to women who need it most. And then over the years, it just ballooned into this out of control thing um, that the formula companies quickly realized was a perfect way to, to get an entire nation hooked on their product, essentially. And um, now we have a situation today where half of all American infants are given free formula through this program. And it's, and now, so you asked about COVID. I mean, this has been a hugely important program for a lot of people now who have no income, no jobs. You saw what happened with the supply disruptions at the beginning of COVID where people couldn't get bread. They couldn't get milk. Well, they couldn't also get infant formula. Right. And so, yeah. And so this COVID has really laid bare that breastfeeding is also a food sovereignty issue. Right. Hugely important too. But because of this program, also we're almost deterring women in these communities not to breastfeed, right? Well, uh, yes, 
But it's more nuanced than that. I mean, in essence, you're talking about the vast majority of women have to go back to work a couple weeks or a week after giving birth. Right. And so it's not so much deterring them to breastfeed as it is as a society not giving us the space to be angry enough and to say this is this is unacceptable. Right. To demand the time that is necessary for us to be able to breastfeed successfully. Right. And and so yes, if you look at what happens on an individual choice level, yeah. I mean, if you start out breastfeeding, and a lot of women in WIC start out breastfeeding, and there are a lot of wonderful counselors in WIC who are incredibly well-intentioned who want to support breastfeeding. But then if they have to go back to work after two weeks and uh, you know, their baby is up crying at night and here they have cans of free formula for, from the government, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah, definitely. And, so, and what happens is, as we know, that the more you interrupt, the more you're not actually on the breast and the more you interrupt that demand, then supply quickly drops. And so if you're introducing formula, then supply drops and then you can't breastfeed. And so it's an impossible situation that we have created in this country. And the sad thing is, is that because we're not willing to talk about how pivotal breastfeeding is and how these are not two equivalents, formula and breastfeeding are not the same. And in fact, there are huge risks to formula feeding. And we have to be able to say that as a society and really talk about it. And because we haven't been able to, we've been able to just turn a blind eye to these giant government subsidy programs and the fact and what an unfair situation it is for the women in this country, for all of us to not be able to give our children um, what people have given their children for thousands of years of human history. And really what's essential to, to our biology. Yes, that's right. So we talked a little bit about this, but breastfeeding in public, I think a few years ago, there seemed to be an influx of stories about women kind of outraged and, and legal action that was taken with women breastfeeding in public. And so have there been any changes on that front in recent months? Uh, It's interesting because you sent me that article, right? About um, what state was that? where the, there were the modesty laws still in place. And yes. I actually wasn't even aware about that. I think it was North Dakota. Yeah, North Dakota. So it is now, it's currently legal to breastfeed anywhere in public or private. And it was when I wrote Unlatched, except for I think Idaho was the only uh, holdout, which has since changed it. But I hadn't realized there were still those modesty laws in place. Um, and yeah, it's, so that just, it shows you how, sexualized breasts are in this country. I mean, breasts are for feeding babies. They, if you look at it from like an evolutionary perspective, from most traditional cultures, I would say nearly all traditional cultures, um, there is nothing loaded about breastfeeding, like exposing yourself. There, It's not even exposing yourself. That's just how babies are <laughs> right. fed. And so <laughs> the fact that we feel like you have to cover up and be discreet just shows how how backward our thinking is in this country. But listen, I mean, this is me talking after having writ- written Unlatched. This was something I went through as a as a new mom, too. I mean, I, I literally fought my husband all the time. We'd be out in public. And I, it's when you're a new mom learning how to nurse, it's not you're not that adept at like gently 
inching up your sweatshirt and but you know it's yeah. really tough and there's a lot of fumbling and I remember a lot of like giant pillows and he would <laughs> he would like throw it he would toss a jacket over me in public or like I'd be at home and and his brother would be hanging out with us and and he would quickly shoo his brother out of there and my mom would come and be like oh I'm so sorry to interrupt you and leave the room and it was just this constant like why is this so uncomfortable in right. our society and yes you're right I mean it's still despite the laws, despite it being on the books, that women have the right to breastfeed in public or private anywhere in this country, um, they're still harassed and it's still not easy. Right. Yeah. So something you mentioned earlier is the breast is best term. Did you want to talk more about that and why perhaps that isn't something we should be talking about? Yes, I would love to. Thank you for asking, Julie. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I like to say that breast is not best. Breastfeeding is the human norm. And by saying that it it's best, it's just, it's so loaded. I mean, it's basically making everyone else who can't feel guilty about it without looking at really like the societal reasons why we don't support breastfeeding in this country and all of the obstacles. Um, and it also normalizes formula. When in fact, to make those societal changes that we need to make breastfeeding possible, we need to accept it as the human norm. And it is. And it's the hard truth to say. And I I don't want to make anyone feel bad. And I believe me, I know how hard it is to breastfeed. I had a really, really, really hard time um, nursing my first. And yeah, I, I just think we need to stop saying breast is best and just say breastfeeding is the norm. And how can we make that possible? Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think some of the formula companies also start with that line, you know, breast is best, but if you can't, here we have a solution for you. So it's interesting how it, it's intertwined in, in everything that we hear about breastfeeding. Yes, that's exactly right, Julie. And it was designed that way, by the way. So, and there's, that's a whole chapter of my book too, is the psychology of the formula companies and how they use that as a way to set up women to fail. And you're right. There right. is always that breast is best, but if you can't, we're the company who's going to support you. Right. In the same way that Coca-Cola really supports childhood obesity. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. So, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah, and the same thing happens with school lunch, right? With the dairy, they they are reimbursed for dairy and um, that's that has a long history as well. Um, so let's talk about something else that's pretty controversial. So not only, you know, breastfeeding in public and breastfeeding either even for a year is, is often seen by some people as as uh, a little too much, if you will. But extended breastfeeding is something you talk about in your book and, and you um, practice this with your kids. And so what would you say is um, what is this exactly and why has it also become so controversial and a hot button topic? Yeah, well. So extended breastfeeding really was just breastfeeding for all of <laughs> right. human history. I mean, up until like this country, up until nine, even in 1900, like the vast majority of American moms nursed their children until the age of four. And if you look at traditional cultures, if you look at what we know about our human history, weaning was really anywhere from two and a half to seven years of age. And so in Unlatch, you know, I... I show what Mongolia looks like and how breastfeeding there till seven till nine is still very much the norm. Um, 
And in this country, you know, we've termed it extended breastfeeding because we don't, like I said before, when I was talking about the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations to nurse for a year or longer, we don't even collect data for past the one year mark. Um, And so when I first came, you know, when I first came face to face, literally with this idea of what we call extended breastfeeding, but really in traditional cultures is just the norm, um, how long human babies are designed to be fed. I mean, it's part of like the, I should just say as a side note, uh, the immune system is not mature until the age of seven. And part of that is this delicate uh, and this important interplay that human milk has in developing the microbiome that we're just starting to uncover and the human immune system that, you know, weaning at one was not the norm. In fact, in a lot of places in the world and for most of human history, if you weaned a child before the age of one, they would be much more likely to die. Um, and so anyway, I, do you remember the Time magazine cover? Yes. Yeah. Who doesn't, okay. right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we're like, a. I think we're about the same age, but I feel like it was like really, really important when I was having my kids, but I don't, there are people who are younger than I am who don't remember it. Um, but for those who are listening who don't remember, uh, there was a woman, her name is Jamie Lynn Grummet, and she was nursing her, I think she, he was almost four years old mm-hmm. on the cover, but the way the photo was set up was to make it look like not how the typical three-year-old looks when they're cuddling up with their mom nursing. He was standing on a stool. He was posed looking into the camera. I mean, this was meant to be provocative. And the cover, I think, said, are you mom enough? And at the time, I had just started, I was researching the proposal for this book. And at the time, I was nursing my older daughter. And, you know, once I had gotten like used to breastfeeding, I realized how easy it was for my life. I was a work from home freelancer. Um, I had no help at all. Like we never had a babysitter or nanny. I didn't have family around. And I breastfeeding made it easy for me to just take her with me wherever I went. Right. And like do an interview on the phone and she would be nursing and fly across the country and she would be nursing. And so it would it was just really easy at a certain point. And I thought, well, why do I need to stop? And then my family started teasing me like, you're going to be Jamie Lynn Grummet next on the cover of Time magazine. (laughs) <laughs> and then, and then I was pregnant with my daughter, Mika and my pediatrician, you know, doctors aren't trained in breastfeeding. That's another part of this issue. They don't know right. a lot about it. And so she was like, I think you can keep breastfeeding, but you know, she'll probably wean herself once your, your hormones, uh, switch during pregnancy and, and your supply levels off. Well, Izzy did not stop nursing while I was pregnant with my daughter, Mika And so I found myself in the situation of nursing both of them, tandem nursing, which was also something I had never learned about. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was breastfeeding. I had just given birth to Mika. Izzy was two and almost two and a half. She was still nursing. And I said to the lactation consultant in the hospital where my younger daughter Mika was born, what am I supposed to do? Like, this is an insane situation I've gotten myself into. And she just looked at me and she said, you know, it was only a few generations ago that every single person in the world was breastfed, not just for one years, but for two years, for four years. Right. And that was another huge aha moment for me. And then that drove me down the path of researching, you know, how, how it wasn't really that long ago that what we term now extended breastfeeding was the norm. And, and it is still in a lot of places around the world. Right, right. And would, I would, forgot your other part of the question. Yeah. Julie. Do you think that more people, more women are 
are breastfeeding beyond the year or or probably not because we see such low rates of breastfeeding yeah. at six months. Anic- anecdotally, I think it's changed a lot since I had my kids. I see a lot of people nursing older toddlers. When I talk about Unlatched now, when I when the book first came out, it was not an easy book to talk about. I mean, because it's so controversial and, and women have had such a, there's been so much disparity at, at who's able to breastfeed and who's not um, that a lot of people would be like, Oh, interesting book. Great. Okay. Um, but now when I talk about it, people say to me, Oh, I'm still nursing my daughter. She's two. And, and I, so I don't have any hard data and I don't know of anyone who is gathering that data, Yeah, but I, I think it's far more common and I'm not on social media, but when I was on Instagram, it certainly seems like, seems like people are posting a lot more about nursing older infants. And I would, I will say I've had some encounters with doctors in recent years that I thought was so encouraging and that I think I had to have some tests done and I was still nursing my younger daughter who at the time was probably like three or four and the doctors didn't even balk. I mean, they were like, Oh, okay, let's make sure this isn't going to interact with the nursing. Good for you for still keeping it up. So Uh I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely see a culture shift. Okay. What, what do you, do you yeah. see a culture shift at all? Um, I think it depends on maybe what part of the country you're in and what kind of communities you live in. Um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely, I live in Bethel, Connecticut and I've seen moms definitely breastfeeding past, uh, one year of age, but then I have a lot of friends too, who weren't able to do it, you know, even to six months. Um, and, and we'll definitely talk about that in the next segment. So we're going to take a break right now. As a busy working mom of two trying to get dinner on the table every night, I had thought about meal planning, but it always seemed way too time consuming and difficult. Yet a few months ago, I discovered the Dinner Daily and it made getting a healthy and delicious dinner on the table so much easier. The Dinner Daily isn't a meal kit, but a personalized dinner planning service that sends you meal plans and an organized grocery shopping list built around your food preferences dietary needs, and family size. And it's the only service that uses your grocery store's weekly specials to help you save money, up to $1,200 a year or more. The Dinner Daily is available for 16,000 grocery stores across the country, and they offer one-click ordering at Kroger stores nationwide and select stop-and-shop stores. Whether you're gluten-free, vegetarian, or have picky eaters, I know you'll love the recipes. My kids are fans of their taco salad and tomato and mozzarella fish. The Dinner Daily not only saves you money on your grocery bill, but new members get two weeks free. And right now, you can try it for 15% off with the code HEALTH15. Just go to thedinnerdaily.com and use code HEALTH15. And now let's get back to this week's episode of Food Issues. Great. So in our last segment, we took a really deep dive into the history of breastfeeding and how it shaped our cultural perspective on it. And we wanted to talk about a little bit more about the obstacles and why breastfeeding isn't necessarily easy for any of us, um, but why rates are still low. So low milk supply is definitely one of the most commonly cited reasons that women stop breastfeeding. And Jennifer, do you think there's been increased awareness about this? Well, I think there's certainly increased awareness with it being a huge issue that every mom I know, every new mom I know is terrified of, unfortunately, but it's, it had, there hasn't been increased awareness 
about what really causes it. Okay. Why don't you go ahead yeah. and talk about that? Yeah. Well, it's really that demand equals supply. It's a really, really simple equation. Um, and yet in the modern world, we live in a situation where that, that arrangement, that ancient um, evolutionary pattern of a baby being nearly constantly on the breast, a newborn baby, isn't possible in the modern world. And there isn't the widespread um, really knowledge or acceptance of really how intense it is in those early weeks and early months. And, and we've also created a situation, like I said, where women have to go back to work. Um, we don't have paid leave in this country. And so from the get-go, we interrupt um, that access to the breast by, for a, a whole number of reasons. I mean, there's, there's like the interventions that happen in the hospital and the fact that we, no one's really talking about the fact that we have an astoundingly high C-section rate in this country. Right. 30, over 30%, I believe. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, and of course that's going to interfere with a mother's ability to have a baby near constantly um, nursing. And so it is, there is no other factor that influences supply other than demand. I know we like to think that like you can boost your milk supply with oatmeal cookies and like all sorts of herbs. And there is some evidence that those have somewhat of an effect, but really there is no substitute for time on the breast. And there are, I see a number of lactation consultants. There are a lot more lactation consultants in the field now. I see this awareness. I, I should say there is a lot of awareness about this among uh, the lactation consultant community, but out in like the public and even my, my friends and family members who have had new babies, it's like they don't trust that their bodies will be able to produce enough milk. Right. Right. Just like we don't trust that we can give birth without drugs or not that I'm advocating for that necessarily, but we, we don't, right. We don't trust that we can give birth in the way that our bodies were designed to give birth. That, yes, that's exactly right. And the other, op the other part of that is that once interventions exist, you know, even if you have the best intentions, like I wanted to have a medication-free birth with both of my children. Um, and I had worked with a doula and everything. And then once I was in the hospital and like 20 hours in of labor, of unproductive labor with my oldest, and the epidural was there and I hadn't slept in two nights, like I ended up having an epidural. Right. Um, and so the same, a similar thing happens with formula. If you all of a sudden, for whatever reason, there's a supply issue. And oftentimes when you are a new mom, it is simply that you are learning how to breastfeed. And that your supply just isn't there yet. And it takes about six weeks to really sort it out and to be patient and to deal with like any engorgement issues and all the things you come up against that a good lactation consultant can or, you know, of support of another mom who's been through it can help you through. Um, but, you know, what happens is you your baby's not gaining weight or not gaining weight in a way that your pediatrician is really used to seeing because so many babies are formula fed and there's such there's 75%, I believe, of babies are supplemented with formula within the first two weeks. Wow. And so there isn't really a baseline for that most doc. Well, there is, there are charts that are based on breastfed babies, but doctors are so used to seeing babies plump up much more quickly mm -hmm. because of formula right. feeding that they'll say if a mom comes in with like, oh, you know, I, he seems hungry. He seems like he wants to feed a lot more. They'll say, okay, well, maybe you're not making enough. Start supplementing with formula. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I see all the time yes. still happening. 
Yeah. I went into my gynecologist's office right before I left LA and there were formula samples in the, in the office. Yeah. Yep. You know, and this is, this is not, this is like a wonderful, one of the best OBGYNs in LA. Like this is someone who has access to all the information and still it's there. And yeah, it's pervasive. Absolutely. So I'll share two stories with you that I think are relevant. I, I have two daughters. They're uh, nine and seven. And with my first, um, she, within a week, we went to the pediatrician and same scenario. He said, oh, she had lost a little bit of weight. I don't know what it was, maybe a few ounces. And he recommended that I supplement. And that's what I did for, I don't know, maybe a few days. And I ended up breastfeeding her for a year. So um, it can go the other way. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, formula, you know, you're done. Um, but I was always, to this day, I'm still surprised that it seemed like such a big concern that we had to that we had to supplement. And yet it wasn't. I had a great milk supply. I had a freezer full of milk throughout my breastfeeding journey with her. And we never really had any problems. We what happened was I went to a lactation consultant at the hospital and that was it. That was the turnaround. Um, and also when I gave birth to her, so uh, here I am a new mom and I'm in the hospital and um, had a three day <laughs> labor, uh, difficult labor and childbirth and um, had been through quite an ordeal. And I had decided I was going to breastfeed and I read a book and that's all I really did. I didn't take a class. You know, I thought it would come quote unquote naturally. And they put, they gave, they gave her to me and I went to put her on my breast. And, and I said to the nurse, is this how the latch should look? And she turned to me and said, I thought you read a book. And I mean, <laughs> talk about, right. Like after being through this huge ordeal, really, I mean, talk about not giving new mom support when they need it the most. Um, I will never forget that. And <laughs> I hope that that nurse has learned how to su better support moms. But yeah, we have talked about that and how doctors and providers really, there's, there's education and awareness that needs to happen. But do you think that doctors now are more informed about breastfeeding and be better able to support women or it's sort of much of the same that it's been for years? No, it's much of the same. Yeah. 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 Um, that's wow. That's an insane story. And I wish it was less common, but I hear stories like that. I mean, all the time I have stories like that too. Yeah. Like endless stories. Um, yeah, no, I will look, I, what I will say is the encouraging thing is it is real at, at like the university level, at the researcher level, at the like starting initiatives to support women breastfeeding from the medical community that is changing. Um, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, which are doctors who are trained in supporting breastfeeding. Uh, there were like 80 members when I was researching Unlatched and now there's thousands. That's great. So I do think, you know, at the very, very top, it is changing, but on, in terms of the kind of care that most people get, no, absolutely not. And part of that is that a lot of people don't realize that doctors receive almost no training, right? Literally no training, just like they receive no training in nutrition. That's right. In medical school. And so sometimes it's like not very supportive at all, like your experience. And sometimes it's like well-meaning. Like I've had doctors say, I don't know, like, let's look this up. Who could mm -hmm. we talk to and figure this out? And I literally do not know. Yeah, well, that's better than 
than pushing yeah. moms away. So, I let, know. and well, yeah. so one more thing, Julie. Yeah, the American Academy of Pediatrics receives millions of dollars a year from the formula companies. Wow, so that's another huge thing that needs to be reconciled as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, they don't want people to know that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about COVID and it's really shined a light on chronic disease in America, both because where studies have suggested that people who have, uh, you know, underlying chronic diseases uh, suffer more with COVID or have more severe cases of COVID. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, I think also that really something needs to be done about chronic disease in America. And we need to be teaching our kids healthy habits from when they're little so they don't face that same um, traje- trajectory. So, you know, can you talk to me about why increasing breastfeeding rates, how that plays into childhood obesity and type two diabetes and all the chronic diseases that we face. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say one of the ironic things is that my original proposal for unlatched included a chapter about breastfeeding and pandemic scenarios, Really, both from like an immunological standpoint of, of how it could be possibly protective, but also from a supply issue standpoint. And it wasn't just pandemics. It was like in the face of climate change and, um, you know, displacement and, and like what happens during wildfires and other catastrophes and, and when you're relying on formula, but yeah, I know. Right. Um, yeah, you need an, you need to get an updated (laughs) version of the book now. (laughs) I know at the time I thought that I thought that scenario was decades away, so it got (laughs) cut, but unfortunately here we are. Um, so yeah, you, so you want to talk about obesity and, and health risks in light of COVID. Well, and breastfeeding, why is that increasing the breastfeeding rates is really important now more than ever. Yeah. Well, the first is, like I said, just from a food sovereignty standpoint, like what are you going to do in a pandemic? Right. So many people are reliant on formula. That's a huge concern. Um, but in terms of looking at more, you know, the, the fact that people with obesity and diabetes are more likely to die when, when something as catastrophic as COVID happens and also more likely to die when something is not as catastrophic as COVID happens. I mean, we're talking about literally setting up our children for a lifetime of chronic illness. Um, and we know, here's the thing, like the, the research on what breastfeeding prevents, but also actually let's talk about when we're talking about normalizing breastfeeding and breast is best. Let's also talk about the fact that we have to talk about the real risks of formula. So breastfeeding isn't a benefit against obesity. Formula feeding increases the risk of obesity. And and I think that change in language is important because it is the truth and it allows us to really fully accept the weight of the situation that we've created. So we know that not breastfeeding, that formula feeding increases the risk of obesity. It increases the risk of type one and type two diabetes. Also, interesting research coming out about how it increases the risk of diabetes in the mother as well. There's some sort of delicate uh, hormone interplay that also affects blood sugar from the mother's perspective as well. Wow. I didn't know that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, a lot of that research was just starting to come out about like uh, increased risk of ovarian and breast cancer for women who don't breastfeed. Um, And so- like just to get back to what I said before is that like human milk is a human tissue that has evolved over 7 million years of human evolution. I mean, there are 
every species of mammal, there are 6,400 species of mammal. Every single one makes a milk that is uniquely geared to the, the needs of its infant. And so what we have essentially done is done a century plus experiment of substituting that, that uniquely evolutionarily tuned lifeblood um, for a hundred years and said, well, let's just see what happens. Right. And now we have skyrocketing rates of obesity, of diabetes, of cancer. How can we not be looking at this as the essential piece of the puzzle? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think needs to happen in the U.S. to increase breastfeeding rates? Well, the number one thing is parental leave. Yeah. Because if you look, yeah, if you look at the statistics, like 84% of women start off, they want to breastfeed. This isn't as the debate isn't coming right off the bat. The debate is coming because women want to breastfeed and face so many obstacles and they can't. And then that causes the controversy. Um, and so if we had parental leave, if there were six months minimum of per- paid parental leave in this country, then women could exclusively, bre- they could at least have their best shot at exclusively breastfeeding for six months. Right. Um, and by the way, so we haven't even talked about pumping at all. I uh-huh. mean, that's another way we've just introduced an industrialized substitute uh-huh. for really a connection between a mother and a child. Right. And that's also affected supply. And that's also, we don't even have the data yet on how that's affected um, success rates. So anyway, if we had that six months minimum, and there are countries that have like years, like a year plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why every other country in the entire world has paid parental leave isn't because every other country in the world is nice. Um, it's because in most areas of the world where women don't have access to formula, babies would die if they did not have that access to paid parental leave. Right. And so we in the United States need to take it seriously. Like this is our chance to give everyone the best start in life, the best chance at not having chronic disease of not having obesity. And so that's the number one thing that needs to happen. Um, the other thing that really needs to happen is we need to really reconcile the national WIC program Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, I mean, this is so layered. I obviously you can't, you can't take away something that is half of this country relies on to survive right now. But if we could somehow transition where we had, where we had paid parental leave, where we lived in a world where women had access to lactation consultants, where doctors were trained in human milk. Where, and all of a sudden, we could take the breastfeeding counselors and support at WIC and make that the centerpiece of WIC instead of free formula. And formula would be something that was used only when medically necessary through that program. That would change this country. Definitely. So do you think that the Biden administration will try to put in place better laws for working moms so they can breastfeed? Well, I know that, you know, Biden did say on the campaign trail that he supports 12 weeks of paid parental leave. That's what's happened, I believe, government employees. And that was something that was actually rolled out this past fall before Biden took office, um, have access to 12 weeks of paid leave. So I think we could see 12 weeks of paid leave happen. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not everything. It's not what we really need, but it's certainly a start considering where we come from. Yeah. he certainly and and Kamala Harris seem more supportive of supporting uh, 
working families than than his predecessor. So I'm hopeful. But, you know, when you look at big picture things, for instance, um, you know, the secretary of agriculture, Tom Vilsack, who's, you know, basically entrenched in a lot of the big ag interests. Uh, I don't know that we're going to see a lot change at like the dairy subsidy trickling into infant formula offloaded onto (laughs) our nation's populace. I don't think you're going to see those big picture kind of changes. Um, But I don't, I, I don't know. I'm hopeful, but I really do think that it, it needs to come from the public. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to just say this is an untenable situation. Right. And um, yeah, we're, it's just, it's so hard right now because everything is so compounded. Right. Um, by COVID. But I think it has really brought to light the vast inequity in this country. Yes. And brought it to a place where we ca- you can't be a human being and stand for it anymore. Right. Absolutely. So now is the time to actually push for those changes. Mm-hmm. What do you recommend people can do to push for those changes? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, you know, there are so many incredible organizations. Uh, if you are want to get involved in, you know, breastfeeding inequity and what and and working in the realm of helping women of color have more access to breastfeeding support, check out the work of Kimberly Seals Allers. Her work is amazing. Um, you know, US breast USBC.com, I believe. Um, the US Breastfeeding Committee has all the policy legislation. But I mean, on a I don't know if this is if this is really exciting for you. I know so many people now who are becoming lactation consultants uh-huh. and women who are working in this area of like breastfeeding support and birth support. And there, I think that this is an incredible field to go become a lactation scientist. Like this is the hottest field of of science research right now, especially since microbiome research is really really important, and this is such an important part of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I mean, I think really, however you feel called to, to get involved, then, then do it. I, sorry, that's a vague answer, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. We'll, we'll link yeah. to those resources in the show notes and Jennifer, tell our listeners where they can learn more about you and follow you and, and about these food issues. Yes. So my website is jennifergrayson.com. I am not on social media, but I do read emails and people are welcome to reach out. And yeah, I'm working on my next book, which is about uh, in the realm of regenerative agriculture. So more food issues to come. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll have, to, <laughs> we'll have to circle back when your book comes out. And thank you so much for your time today, Jennifer. We re- really appreciate it. Thank you, Julie. I so appreciate you having me on the show. I hope you love that conversation with Jennifer Grayson as much as I did. And I want to thank our sponsor, The Dinner Daily, and remind you to head on over to thedinnerdaily.com and use code HEALTH15 to get 15% off. I'm Julie Revelon, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love it if you could please take a second and leave a review and a rating. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 